Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. All right, BGG gang, hello from France. Super stoked to share this episode with you. My guest today is David Leibovitz. David was a professional cook and baker for most of his life before becoming one of the most celebrated cookbook authors and food bloggers around. He started his blog in 1999, which is now a gastronomic one-stop shop for all things French. On a personal note, David's writing played a huge role in my culinary development. I spent several summers as a teenager working in kitchens in Massachusetts, and in my spare time, I worked my way through his book, Room for Dessert and The Perfect Scoop. Uh, The Perfect Scoop is, I think, the best ice cream book out there. Uh, His chocolate sorbet recipe is an all-time favorite of mine. I still make it all the time. Uh, David and I spoke last month about his most recent book, which is called Drinking French. It covers everything from vermouth to coffee to liqueurs to distillate. Basically, it's like the culture of drinking in France. It's not just recipes. It's way, way more than that. And along the way in this episode, David and I get into talking about his Substack newsletter, his approach to recipe testing cocktails, and just the evolution of food writing over the past couple of decades. I tried my very best to contain my excitement, but as you can probably tell, I am fangirling for most of our chat. Um, But anyway, let's just get into it. Here's David. You're not on TikTok yet, though, right? Um, No, I'm not, because it requires a lot of creativity, I think, and it seems like a a creativity suck. I'm sort of dialing down certain things, um, and a lot of my job is just keeping people at bay because people would like things and I'd like to do another book. So I need to stop doing things and do that. That's the hardest thing to do, right? Is to figure out what, what to focus on and how to say no to like all that other bullshit. Right. I mean, I think that's the hardest thing to do. Well, a friend of mine has a friend who's a children's book author and he only answers emails on Tuesday. I'm like, that's great. I, I think Bill Murray does something similar. Like you can only reach him via like a fax number, something crazy like that, so that he can only get the information a very specific way. Well, now the problem is there's many ways to reach people, you know, Facebook messages, Twitter. um, I don't look at Twitter. Um, I looked at it recently and there was some spam, you know, Twitter sends out people spam. I'm sure it's like super tough also because, I mean, you've got amazing engagement on all of your platforms, right? Like people replying on blog posts or on Instagram posts. It's got to be challenging, right? Because people want to engage with you. They want they want to like let you know how much they enjoyed whatever recipe it is or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. It must be really, really tricky to manage all of that. Well, I always give priority to people who have bought a book because <laughs> those are people who support me. Um, so, you know, you sort of prioritize people and people who send me messages and they begin they don't say anything, but just a demand. You know, I'm being inundated by messages now on Instagram, people coming to Paris for Christmas. And they want to know where to eat. And it's like, have um, you been to my website? Have you seen like any of the yeah. like guides that I already have set up? Yeah. And so those, I just, you know, they don't say anything. They don't say, hello, David. They just were like, where should we eat? Oh, <laughs> oh man, that's funny. That's wild. You're from New England as well, right? I mean, Connecticut, I was born right? there. And you were back in New York just a month ago, right? Uh, yes. And when you go, are there certain places that you like absolutely need to check out? Well, I made a lot of friends when I was writing Drinking French. So I know a lot of people in the bar community and the cocktail community and in the spirits community. They're a great group of people. 
and they've been very open. I was sort of surprised at how how nicely they welcomed me and were helpful to me um, without being, I have no connection to that world. And they were just very helpful um, and wonderful. Like people often go to bars and they're sort of, I was always scared of bartenders because they work hard, you know, they play hard, you know, reputation wise. Um, But it seemed like a click to me. Were there any really exciting aha moments when you were in New York where you got a chance to try something that you haven't had access to here in Paris? Um, Well, what was interesting was when I was writing Drinking French, I know a lot about French culture and I know a decent amount of how French people live and eat and drink. Um, But there seemed to be a link missing to the drinks uh, portion of that. Whereas, you know, people, people come to France or people who are French, you know, they spend their life drinking and not drinking alcohol, but there's coffee. The cafes are very important. Um, people come here, they want to go to a cafe, they want to have hot chocolate, uh, they want to go to a cocktail bar, um, and so forth. So a lot of people, I was trying to decode a lot of that for, especially for foreigners, but also for French people, because no one had written a book that codified all of the French aperitifs. You know, you go to a bar or a cafe and you see these odd bottles, you're like, what is that? What is that? What is that? So I also had a learning curve because I know from writing books, if you want to write a book about something, you need to be an expert at it. You can't just phone it in. And I knew that I knew enough about these things, but I wanted to really know them well. So that was one of the reasons I spent a lot of time in New York was because I wanted to know what Americans knew and what they wanted to know about French spirits. And not that New York is a cross section of America, but it's where a lot of stuff happens. So I was fortunate to meet sommeliers, to meet liquor distributors. Um, You know, I became good friends with the Tim Master, who's the brand ambassador for Chartreuse, for example. It was very difficult to get in touch with them when I was in France, um, because they wanted, it's very French, they wanted letters, (laughs) they wanted emails, they wanted all these meetings before I could meet. Yeah, it was very difficult. And Tim was able to facilitate it within 20 minutes. Really? Yeah, so that was great. Um, and through him, I got to know the president of Chartreuse, or the director general, for example. There were other people I got to meet, too, in the spirits world. Um, Pascaline, who had uh, Racines, for yeah, example. Yeah, Pascaline Lepeltier, right? Yeah. You know, I didn't delve too deeply into wine in the book because it's a very big subject. And when you write a book, you have a certain page count and it's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, it's a big subject. It's not. Yeah. Some- you can't just do like one little chapter or sub chapter on that. You can explain French wine. You can say like there's red, whites, and rosés, and then there's champagnes. And, mm-hmm. you know, you know, and then do that. But how do you summarize that in two pages? And it's just wasn't my focus of the book. And I want to circle back to Chartreuse, which is such a like fascinating beverage, which I think has really had a resurgence over the past, like, I don't, I want to say like five to 10 years. I think before that, it was just kind of seen as this kind of spooky green beverage put on the same kind of like shelf as absinthe. And now I think people are just really into the story of these Cartesian monks, right? with this unique recipe that they've worked through. There's a handful of places that offer, you know, different chartreuses from different eras, I suppose, right? I mean, what were some of the fascinating things you learned along the way about chartreuse in your research? Well, you know, chartreuse is so fascinating because it's one of these only in France spirits. You know, France has Calvados, but people make apple brandy in America. They make it in Germany. Um, 
ditto with a lot of other things. And not to say, you know, Calvados is special because it's made in a certain region, not to take anything away from Calvados, but there's nothing really like chartreuse. There's a few similar liqueurs, but they don't match it. You know, basically mm -hmm. chartreuse has a thousand year history. You know, they've been making it for 400 years, but the monks go back to the year like 1004 or 1000. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, it's, it's had a resurgence in the last few years. It was very popular in the 60s in America. There was all these great ads for it. Um, you know, the mystique of chartreuse. Um, then it started sliding downhill. And so they started coming up with things like the swamp water, which was pine pineapple juice and chartreuse that you drank out of basically a jam jar. So this is before the hipsters and people discovered <laughs> jam jar drinks, um, you know, pineapple juice and chartreuse. But, you know, the monks don't even know what a cocktail is. There's no idea. Um, but it did have a, does, did have a resurgence. Um, and part of it is because Americans are very, very interested in they want to learn stuff in spite of our reputation um, that precedes us sometimes. Um, a lot of spirits makers I've met, they're like, oh, Americans come here and they really want to know about cognac. Like they want to know how it's made. They want to know the grapes. They want to see us making it. Where in France, people say, oh, cognac, it's too strong. I can't drink it. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah, I had gives me a headache. So Americans, once again, have become very important um, to a lot of these spirits internationally. And chartreuse is just special to me. Um, it's got a certain mystique um, and a flavor. Um, like Pascaline, she's a chartreuse collector. There's people addicted to it. I don't mean that in a bad way, but could say like accro in French, like uh, hooked on. Yeah. Um, and there's something about it. There's the mystique, there's the flavor. Yeah. And it's that kind of like beautiful combination of like anthropology mixed in with history, mixed mm -hmm. into just, you know, the process by which it's made. Was your first experience with chartreuse when you were living in SF working for Chez Panisse? Or? Yes, at Chez Panisse, we use chartreuse um, because one of the owners, Lindsay Shear, who was the executive pastry chef, she did a lot of reading. She was a very uh, Francophile or, and Italian, you know, very into French and Italian things. So we would make these weird, um, unique things. And I don't say weird in a bad way. Um, sometimes they didn't work, but we would use chartreuse for things. And I would just, you know, I just discovered it was so great with ice cream, with chocolate. Um, Madeline Kamen, the great cookbook author and cook, makes this white chocolate mousse or Bavarian with chartreuse. And it's just, it's delicious. That sounds really good, yeah. Um, you know, people balk. One of the things that was interesting doing videos for the book was I got a lot of feedback from people immediately and people were like, well, it's very expensive. I'm like, yes, but you know, <laughs> it's special. It's not, yeah. you know, and it's funny, people will spend 30, $50 on a bottle of wine. They go out to dinner, but then you say, you know, Oh, this bottle of chartreuse or, you know, whatever is 50 or $60. They're like, Oh, Oh, that's expensive. I've always encountered that. Yeah. People have this hesitancy to buy like a hundred dollar bottle of spirits, but the beautiful thing about that, right. Is you open it and it's shelf stable. It's not like a bottle of wine that you need to crush in one day. I mean, if you, I guess if you really want to crush a bottle of chartreuse in one day, you can get a couple of friends together, but yeah. yeah, not necessarily the way you should do it. You, you can nurse that bottle over the course of a year. Yeah. Well, I told people, you know, chartreuse is the only liquor that evolves in, in the bottle, whether it's open or not. So I said, whatever you buy now is going to only increase in value. <laughs> not that there are a lot of chartreuse, you know, people stockpiling chartreuse, but 
the old bottles of chartreuse sell for a lot of money. Oh yeah. It's insane. And I think it's, what is it? Pouring ribbons in New York that would do these crazy verticals of different spirits, whether it's Campari, you know, the old school recipe when they were using the cochineal beetle or whatever. So yeah, it's crazy. There's a fellow in San Francisco, Paul Einbund at the Morris, and he's a vintage chartreuse collector. And I did an Instagram live at his apartment and the restaurant. And he just brought out like these bottles that he's been collecting for years. He's just completely um, crazy in a great way. Uh, He's just obsessed. And it was so fun to taste, but it's hard to taste a lot of alcohol. That's the problem. I was going to say, what was recipe testing like? through this process? Cause I'm, you've written enough cookbooks over the years. You've probably mastered the art of like figuring out how to like perfect it, but you do have to make the same thing over and over again to make sure that it's good. How is it different with a cocktail or working on infusions? What, what's recipe testing like there? Well, when I started writing the book, um, I thought, well, you know, it's going to be easy because you just make a cocktail and you just keep adding ingredients to the glass until it's where you like it. Um, That's not the case. The first thing I learned was that you can't wake up at 8 a.m. like you're doing when you're writing a baking book and start recipe testing because very quickly. You're not taking Negronis for breakfast. That's not the. uh... I don't like day. I'm not a day drinker. (laughs) Fortunately, I have an assistant who's a lot younger than me, and she was very good at helping me taste things because it's hard to, I can eat cake all day, but drinking all day is just not, um, (laughs) not easy. So I had to learn how to do that. And it was actually was difficult. And I, I don't have the like bartenders who come up with drinks, um, like Damon Bolt at Grand Army in New York. He's amazing at coming up with names of drinks. You know, he's like a uh, savant. And I kept trying to channel him. I'm like, what do you call like a blackberry drink with chartreuse? Um, So that was a challenge. It was a learning curve for me. No, I believe it for sure. And I know you take a lot of your own photos when it comes to like the blog. And I'm sure over the years, you've developed some really good like food styling, just instincts. But taking photos of cocktails or bottles of vermouth like that that's a whole different muscle i'm sure right well one thing great about working with a photographer especially someone like ed anderson is whenever i've written a book i've been in the studio i've either been the stylist or been in the studio only i think once i wasn't um or twice and you get to sort of refine your vision and i've worked with ed before he's done a lot of spirits books especially with my friend, Brad Thomas Parsons, who writes about Amaro and Italian spirits. And Ed sees things I don't see. Um, we'll go to a bar and he'll take a picture. Um, Someone else have to say, take a picture of that because it's in the book. Like I talk about this, you know, in the book. So yeah. make sure you get that in the photo. But yeah. otherwise I see things that, you know, through his eyes, um, styling drinks is really difficult. Like every bartender is actually a food stylist. When you go to a bar and you have a nice mixed drink and they present it to you with garnishes, they're food styling and they're really good at it. Yeah. Um, and it's a skill they've developed many for many, many years. Yeah. You know, it's like there's a skill to making a cup of chocolate pudding look good in front of a camera. You don't just stick it. So <laughs> I was very fortunate. George Dolis, who is one of the top food stylists, um, was the stylist for, for some of the book. 
and I love him. Um, and he's very good at everything he does. He used to live in France. So we had a really good partnership, the three of us. And then the book itself actually came out on March 3rd. Uh, um, <laughs> amazing timing, amazing timing to, to, to publish a book and start a book tour, right? Well, it was uh, very interesting because the weeks leading up to my book tour, you know, there was a book party planned in New York and they were trying to, you know, figuring out what to do, um, you know, how many people we're going to have. Um, and then you started hearing about this virus coming and I was going to do a thing on the airplane, a presentation with an air, um, an airline, you know, they had cards printed up and they were all amazing things, you know, these things take months to organize. The book tour was organized. I had a sponsor, a liquor, wonderful liquor company. And then, um, I had a major health issue come up that um, was sort of personal and mm-hmm. um, I was sort of trying to like see what was, where that was going. And mm-hmm. fortunately it didn't go anywhere bad. Um, but I sort of had to talk to my publisher about that, which was very personal. And then COVID was happening at the same time. So I was supposed to fly like March 2nd to New York or March 1st. And all of a sudden, um, the, um, the SAJ, I don't, I don't want to swear on your podcast, but no, we swear all the time on this podcast. It's totally okay. SAJ hyphen T came down, you know, all of a sudden lockdown was happening and travel was off the table. And I got, it was funny because I started to get a little bit of blowback from people like in the States not bad in a way, but they're like, well, we've been planning this for months. I was like, because things happened in Europe before yeah. they happened in America. People saw it coming, but nobody knew where we were going to be, of course. Yeah. And they were like, well, we thought, you know, we had all these you know, plans. I'm like, <laughs> and, yeah. yeah, no, for sure. I was working at a bar at the time and it was like, I remember us saying, well, we'll just make sure we wash our hands extra well. Like yeah. that's what we'll do. That'll be enough. I actually wrote up instructions how to um, approach me to get a book signed. I was like, yeah. I want to be posted. You know, people have to yeah. you know, put down the book in front of me. I don't want to touch it. And then, of <laughs> course, yeah, it evolved to um, to lockdowns and so forth. So I was stuck at home. I had 200 bottles of liquor and nothing to do. Which is either a good or a really bad thing. Depends well, on it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And so somebody from Instagram reached out to me and she goes, you know, we love you. I was like, really? And she's like, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm in the office like you, we want to help you. Um, have you thought about doing Instagram live? I said, no, I don't like video. I hate video. <laughs> I'm scared of video. Um, I, didn't, I didn't say I hate video. I said, I'm scared of it. Um, and they told me, so I tried one. I said, well, maybe I should just do like a drink from the book. And so then I started doing them and it sort of snowballed into something uh, bigger than what, you know, just making a drink. I, I sort of quickly learned that um, it was good for me too, because I needed some regularity. So I was like, okay, every day at six o'clock, I'm going to do a drink. And people started watching more and more and they started getting very attached to it. Um, and a community was built. Um, people started meeting each other in the comments. They became the Apero Hour people. And so I got to meet a lot of people that way. And people were very engaged with it. It, it sort of became my full-time job. Because a lot of times people, I would do a blog post with the recipe. Yeah. And people were like, well, where's the, what's the recipe? What's the recipe? What's the recipe, please? Recipe, please. So I would you know, have to spend the day doing a blog post, taking a picture, posting that, getting the, you know. And then, so it became sort of a lot. Um, yeah. It was fun. Um, but it How long did you do it for? How many months? Maybe three or four months. Wow. And this um, is like right at the start of quarantine, like 
March, April, May, like around that time frame? Yeah, I think it was late March. Mm. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I, I've saved them all on my <laughs> Instagram account. But it was very good, you know, people were writing to me like, you know, this is really saving me. We, you know, we're stuck at home, um, just seeing you. It's a nice connection to the outside, which is very gratifying, you know. To be fair, some of these people, right, it's six o'clock your time, it's noon or perhaps yeah. 10 in the morning their time. Yeah. I don't know if they're drinking along with you. No, but, you know, it was interesting because people were like, can you do these later? I'm like, no. Because, you know, we have dinner at eight o'clock and I don't work at eight o'clock. You know, I don't want to. I'm not do doing it. an Instagram live at two in the morning. No. Like, yeah. I've actually had somebody wanting, somebody signed me up to do a seminar. It started like at 11 p.m. <laughs> and they didn't get the time right. And they were arguing with me about it. I said, you know, I can't do a cocktail seminar, you know, till 1.30 in the morning. Yeah, it's not going to happen. So the Instagram lives were fun. I'm, I, I got to meet a lot of people. Um, people talked a lot about the book. Um, so it was very well received. Um, and of course it was good for book sales. Yeah, totally. Um, so that was very nice. Um, it's nice when you write a book and it's well received. I think, you know, those people were great. And it got some quality, uh, awards over at, uh, Tales of the Cocktail this year, right? I know. I was so happy. Um, I was actually stunned because Tales of the Cocktail is quite a preeminent organization. It's not a minor thing. Um, and there was a lot of, there's a lot of cocktail books that come out every year by seasoned cocktail people. But I think it's the sort of thing also where you, you're you in that world and you're kind of in a bit of a bubble, right? And to have someone that maybe isn't like born and raised in that cocktail bubble, write a book that begins yeah. with a recipe on hot chocolate and then works its way, not just through like, this is a recipe, but here is a culture associated right. with drink. I, I think it's a unique perspective that maybe other people didn't have and people recognize that living in Texas tales of the cocktail was a huge thing because they would do it in the off season in new Orleans. It was always like, I want to say in August. So it's just like sweltering, like disgustingly hot weather in new Orleans, but you can stay at the ACE hotel for like 99 bucks. So yeah. like, well, it's interesting. Um, you know, cause when the book was the publisher where we were working on the cover, um, I kept saying, well, I don't want to position this as a cocktail book because it's not a cocktail book. It's a book about French drinks from, you mentioned hot chocolate. There's also, you know, infusions. There's yeah. all the cafe drinks. That was also another reason I wrote the book. You know, people would come to French like, what's that green drink? <laughs> why are they putting, you know, what's that red stuff they're putting in beer? Yeah. Um, why is everybody drinking beer instead of wine? This is France and yeah. so forth. So I wanted to talk about the culture of drinking, not just cocktails, um, it's just every bottle in France, as you know, as a sommelier, every bottle of wine has a story. It's not just, oh, this is a white from Merceau. So it was interesting that it was considered a cocktail book. Um, Ten Speed's done a lot of like, um, I don't know if it's cocktail books per se, or just like spirits related books. I'm trying to think. Talia, I think did Spritz, right? She did the Sherry book. Um, I'm pretty sure that... Um, the champagne book by Peter Liam is also in there, right? Like they have a long lineage of making just really high quality, yeah. like they fully contextualized Jim, uh, books on yeah, drinks. They, they do Jim Meehan's books. They did Jeffrey Morgenthaler's last book. They like cocktail books and they do a very good job with them. And one year I was nominated for a James Beard award and I was at the 10 speed table in New York and it was all cocktail writers. So everybody was passing around flasks at the table. Oh, amazing. And, and I got hammered um, and I was like, as you should, man, like that's the way to do it. 
well, but I was like, please don't let me win, God. I was like, praying <laughs> I didn't win because I was like, I'm going to be drunk on stage with Martha Stewart. I was like, I'm going to like pass out in Martha Stewart. You know? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so, fortunately, I was like, yeah, I didn't win. That, that's the dream. That's that's my dream to just pass out into Martha Stewart's arms. That that sounds magical. <laughs> well, it was interesting being there and it's interesting being part of that community. And, you know, fortunately, I just have these, now I have a whole new set of friends in the world, around the world, you know, in Paris and in New York and in San Francisco, and we're in the cocktail world. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, you got your start working, you know, in kitchens, you were a, a line cook for a bit, and then you found yourself in kind of the world of food writing, and now in kind of the world of cocktails. I'm curious, the, the different, like, norms and the way in which people interact, granted, when you're in your... 20s and 30s, like working in kitchens, that's a very specific vibe. But I mean, when you think about the ways in which these different groups see the world, whether it's writers, or cooks, or bartender types, what's kind of the difference there between everyone? Well, you know, I started off as being a line cook in restaurants when I was like 18 or something. Or yeah. In or around there. Um, and, you know, it was wild you know, people think of me as this like nice person. I'm like in a cardigan sweater. I'm like, Oh no, I threw skillets at people, you know, hell yeah. We, we, you know, <laughs> I had people throw things at me, souffle, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, we had fun. It wasn't like, I didn't, fortunately I didn't work in any really terrible kitchens, you know, by my good fortune, I um, was hired at Chez Panisse to work there. And this is when all the, you know, farm to table movement was starting to happen. Chez Panisse was really the restaurant in the world to eat at and to work at. And I was really fortunate to be hired there. Yeah, I was going to say not to not to be rude, but like, why did they take you? Like, what, what? how did that happen? Well, I went in there to apply for a job and they, the woman who was the chef told me to get out that I was, she was really busy. She didn't have time to talk to me and I was mortified, which is fine. Um, and when I came back, um, you know, restaurants always need people. Like everyone, mm-hmm. even, you know, Every, they always, there's always an opening. Um, You're always just one no call, no show away from being totally fucked. Yeah. I went back and they had a change of chefs. Said we obviously saw that I knew how to behave. I knew how to cook and I knew how to move. You know, people don't realize how important it is to move properly in the kitchen. And I was sort of thrown into the mosh pit. I became, I was a line cook like on the weekends, like Friday and Saturday night at Chez Panisse. We had people lining up at 430 from when we opened at five until 1130 at night, we were just slammed. Yeah. Um, the upside of Chez Panisse was the ingredients we got were incredible. The commitment to freshness, um, local ingredients, quality, you know, wine, everything. We, it was just, you know, it's an experience. I can't, you know, can't encapsulate in a three minute discussion, but it was very, a very special place to work. Yeah. Um, I have lifelong friends and family now. Um, and I was there for 13 years. Uh, mostly in the, I was a line cook and then I switched to the pastry department. Um, and it was interesting when I started writing about or coming up with cocktail recipes, I was like, oh, well, this is kind of like baking. It's the same thing, even like winemaking in a way, uh, you know, it's, it's you a product and you figure out how to transform it while mm-hmm. keeping the elements of it intact, honoring the original ingredients and so forth. So and it, there's a level of precision that's required. Um, there's a lot of precision required with making a really good cocktail. It, it's down to, you know, mm-hmm. the quarter ounce cooking as well, cooking compared to baking, right? 
so much precision required to make something really, really work. Well, when people tell me, they should say, I can't bake. I'm like, well, a recipe says one cup of sugar, four eggs, you know, 10 ounces of chocolate, you know, it's like a cocktail. Oh, I can't make a cocktail. Okay. Well, in Manhattan is two ounces of whiskey, one, you know, one ounce of vermouth. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yes, you can just follow the recipe. Um, People don't use a recipe to make like an, you know, fried eggs in the morning. They don't measure the butter. (laughs) <laughs> they don't measure the amount of ham, uh, mustard they put on their ham sandwich. So there's, you know, coming up with a cocktail or a drink recipe um, requires some precision, but that pres- we do that work so that people who are making it at home don't have to. When they see a recipe for a boulevardier or a last word or a yellow cocktail, it's written out. That can make it, you know, and you go to these like really high quality cocktail bars, the ones that you were talking about in New York, in Texas, where I lived for so many years, a place like Anvil, these, you know, James Beard nominated bars. And these bartenders are still using jiggers. They're still measuring everything oh, yeah. out. And these are people that, you know, make cocktails for a living. They spend all day making these drinks and they still make sure to measure. Well, I also made sure like in my book, I wanted to make sure all the drinks were doable at home. And I always tell people, you know, you go to a bar and they add like two drops of black walnut tincture mm-hmm. and, you know, two drops of Carthusian honey or whatever. Um, that's great for a bar. Um, a home cook it's a big ask to ask people to add a teaspoon of absinthe to a cocktail or a quarter, yeah. you know, rinse the glass with absinthe. So I only use, you know, no I, liquid nitrogen in any of your drinks. No, no, no frozen yeah, drinks I going just, on in there. You know, it's like chef food, you know, a lot of, you know, chefs have access to things like squab stock or, you know, hyssop flowers or a wok that you can heat up to 800 degrees. Um, yeah. Whereas at home, you know, I think about how people cook at home and I want my recipes to be accessible. I'm not writing about. It's not one of those books that's just going to sit as a coffee table book, you know? Yeah, exactly. There, there's no shortage of those, whether it's like, what is it? Modern gastronomy or even like yeah. the French laundry cookbook, the Momofuku book. Like those are great books, but yeah. I'm probably not going to cook from them. I'm going to look at, yeah. I'm going to look at the recipes, read it, but I'm not going to buy a thousand dollars worth of equipment just to make this one dish. Yeah, and that's why like Jeffrey Morgenthaler, who's a famous bartender, I became um, good friends with him. And he, he's great, but he, all his drinks you can, he's like, I'm reinventing the amaretto sour. <laughs> uh, here's my you know sidecar without the sugar add. You know, he's reinventing things, but it's all doable. And he makes it very approachable. And in one of his books, he talks about tonic water because everybody's like, you should use fancy tonic water. He's like, Schweppes, like you Schweppes. <laughs> Yeah. It was, it was so great to talk with you a little bit about that time of your life when you were working at Chez Panisse, but then when you decided to make the pivot into like writing a book, mm-hmm. like how did you decide to make that jump? Like, what was it for you that, that drove you to write a book? Well, when um, I was working at Chez Panisse, I, there were, had been a Chez Panisse dessert book that was published and I proposed to the owner. Um, I said, well, I'd like to do another Chez Panisse dessert book. And there were some questions about that. And Alice said, you should do your own book. And it was kind of time for me to leave the restaurant business. I'd been in it. I'd been at Chez Panisse 13 years. Was, you know, it's a long time in restaurant years. Yeah. Multiply it by seven. Kitchen years are like dog years yeah. in that way. You got to just like. Yeah. Well, you know, you can't, you know, after you hit 40, it's hard to stand up all day. You know, you need to eat. You need to go to the bathroom. You need to do, you know, take care of things. You can't yeah. just go full tilt all the time. So I, so I wrote a book 
um, my first book, Room for Dessert. And I kind of realized like food tells a story. That's how I got into sort of blogging too. It's like, well, you know, a recipe is not just here's a meatloaf recipe. It's like, what is meatloaf? Why is this? Why am I making this? Why am I telling people try this meatloaf because it has, you know, veal and beef and pork in it rather, you know, what is it about vanilla ice cream that makes this one really good? And so we use headnotes in the United States. They don't use them in the rest of the world um, before recipes. And that tells the story of the recipe or entices readers to make it or gives them tips. You know, if you want to use, you know, make this vegan, yeah. you can substitute tempeh for the pork. You know? And if you really want to make great vanilla ice cream, use Mexican vanilla. Yeah. Why is, you know, people hear Mexican vanilla and they're like, oh, it's 99 cents. It's like, that's your chance to tell people, mm-hmm. you know what? Mexican vanilla is the best in the world. It's not 99 cents a quart. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a great way to communicate to people, to teach people, to have a conversation with people. That's what's interesting about social media as well. Um, the good side about social media. I mean, there's a lot of bad things about it as well. Um, fortunately, I tend to um, stay on the good side of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I imagine that's so tricky because since you started the blog in what, 99, right? Yes. I just feel like the food landscape has changed so much. Like in that period of time, we've had Instagram come up. We've got so much more like video content that's being created. I know you started a newsletter on Substack. I don't know if you feel like your voice is different on the sledder compared to the blog. Mm -hmm. I know that with the, with the newsletter, it's monthly and it's supplemented by like behind the paywall recipes, right? Oh, behind the paywall stories and recipes sometimes. What's interesting is when I started blogging, nobody was blogging. You know, you could just write about, you know, yesterday, you know, some old lady tripped me on the Metro and (laughs) I hate I hate her. Yeah. And nobody read it. Nobody cared. Now you say that. And it's like, why do you hate old people? Like, oh, well, you know, if you're going to want to, you start to be scrutinized. Um, And now people go through blog posts because it's a free for all. Everybody's reading these things. Yeah. So even a word choice is just like, well, why do you live in France if you don't like handheld showers? It's like, you know, (laughs) okay, I'm writing about this one specific aspect, you know, and they'll people. You use the word uh, almost everybody, but that implies like a lot of, and you're just with Substack, taking a breath because I'm getting worked up now thinking about it. Um, <laughs> you have people that are signing up to get your, your missives. Yeah. Just having them sign up, you know, it's free, the newsletter, um, means that they've made a commitment to follow you. Yeah. And adding a paywall, um, which Substack does, or they have a paid version of your newsletter for um, listeners who aren't familiar with Substack. You have a free newsletter. Um, you're encouraged to put your best content out there for free. And um, paid pe- people can pay to get additional content and or to support you. Um, because a lot of us are self-employed and that's, it, it costs money. People don't realize when you have a blog, you have server costs, you have, you know, different expenses that are considerable, like and you're, so it's a big, it's a lot yeah. of technology you have to learn. Like I know how to HTML code, which is completely crazy because all I want to do is make ice cream <laughs> and marshmallows all day. That's funny. So I don't get to make ice cream and marshmallows anymore because I'm coding and doing photo editing. So Substack is like, you know what? It's like the picture doesn't have to be perfect. I'm not trying to attract people. These are people that have already bought in. They're here for it. They want to be there. Yeah. Yeah, they want to be there. They want to follow me. Um, it comes as an email, so I don't have to depend on them coming it, to visiting my site. 
but but the spontaneity that comes with maybe like you want to put out a blog post. I mean, I'm sure now it's all very regimented, but when you yeah. started, perhaps it was more, I want to write about this today. We're going to do this. And yeah, it used to be whatever, you know, the beginning of blogging, like 2003, there were seven bloggers. There were seven bloggers. <laughs> um, see, once again, I just made a mistake. I said was, and that would get picked we'll up. We'll fix it in now. post. We'll fix it in post. Yeah, that's no okay. There were seven bloggers and we all sort of were like just doing, you know, whatever we wanted. Um, I was writing haiku about espresso chocolate and stuff and nobody was reading it. Um, There was no comments. It was just kind of fun. And then people started reading it and it was still fun. And it's grown and grown and grown. Um, And it still is fun. It's just what the newsletter is like, oh, well, okay, now I can just sit down and say, you know what, today I made this chocolate pudding and the picture doesn't have to be perfect. I can take the pictures with my camera phone. I don't need my big camera. I don't need to do Lightroom and then photo. I was, this is wonderful baking blog and I was reading it and she has a whole post about how she edits her photos. And she's like, first I put them through Photoshop and then I put them off through Lightroom and it was literally three pages. No, thank you. Put it out into the ether. Let it do its thing. You, you can't be too precious with yeah, this. Yeah, but that's what she, yeah. she needs to do to make people, you know, and now these bloggers have, you know, they're building, they've built studios behind their houses. They have test kitchens. It's changed. And I'm not complaining about that. I, I know some of them and they're wonderful people. It's just, that's not what I want to do. That's not why I got into what I do. Totally, for sure. Do you ever get recognized though? Like on the streets of Paris, like at this point, you've developed such a great following. Are you ever just grabbing your, your cantalay and then suddenly someone's like, hey, David. Yeah, but what's funny is sometimes people will write to me later. They're like, well, I saw you in the Marais, but I didn't want to say hello. <laughs> it's fine. You know, I don't, it doesn't bother me at all. Somebody actually once bought me a drink. I was at a, a wine bar and my person, they said, well, these people would like to buy you a glass of wine. And I was so like shocked. I was like, oh, you can get free stuff. I was like, thank you. That's good. the real perk right there. Yeah, that's the real perk. I got a free glass of wine in like 2014. Listeners out there, if you see David, buy him some booze. If you see him at a bar, just get him a glass. Get him a glass of something. Fuck it, don't get him a glass. Get him a bottle. Just like send over a bottle of champagne. No. I don't, you know, I've had people over the years like invite me to like three-star restaurants and so forth. And I just de- politely decline because, you know, it's not my thing. You know, it's, I'm not out to get freebies. Um, and actually it's hard cause I don't have a lot of time to see my own friends. Yeah. So I definitely don't, you know, it's hard to say, okay, I'll have coffee with you. You know, it's just, well, and they have their own idea of who you are, right? Like they've built up in their mind, this version of David yeah. because of what they've read years ago. I did, this is like in 2006, I got an email, on my blog and this guy said, well, I thought you were nice and you're not. And I'm going <laughs> to tell all my friends and family and people I work with. And I was thinking, imagine somebody showing up at work saying, there's this guy that has a blog and he writes about making banana bread and he's not nice. <laughs> oh, man. I was like, so what did I say? Yeah. Oh, no. David, before I let you go, is there a place that you've experienced recently, maybe in the past like month or two, uh, that has really just wowed you in Paris, uh, either a, a bar or a restaurant or a pastry shop, anything like that, that you want to let listeners know? Um, you know, I don't get super wowed because um, it's just my daily life, going to the bakery, going to a restaurant. Um, but like I was recently at uh, this new, ba- newish bakery that opened in last December called Tepicerie. 
um, which is across from Septim, which is owned by Septim. And a lot of their pastry, you, you go in there and it's not the usual lineup of eclairs, canelays. They do like things like uh, shoe puffs with hay. Uh, it's called fleuve, which is like a, a farm plant and the cream inside, delicious. Um, all their stuff is very seasonal. They had this black currant tart. You know, black currants are very, even in France, it's hard to find black currants, like your fresh ones. I mean, you can find them here easily, yeah. more easily than the But they had this tart that was just like loaded with black currants with this rose geranium cream, and it was outstanding. So that really wowed me. Um, it's an amazing shop. It's super cool. I think they roll out different pastries over the course of the day, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you go in the morning, you'll have access to different things, and they're constantly baking over the course of a couple of hours so that there's something new. Yeah. Like if you go later in the afternoon, something very fresh. I recently put a picture. They had a croissant. And I put a picture of it on my Instagram account. They said, you know, croissant uh, Euro 50. And all the French people complained that it was very expensive. They couldn't believe how expensive it was. All the Americans <laughs> were like, oh my God, that would be like 450 in America. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. But, you know, they use very, they use the best ingredients and, you know, it's really an inspired, it's very different. So I like going there very much. There we go. Check out tapisserie, patisserie when you're in Paris. And, and what are you drinking tonight? What's going to be on the uh, beverage list? Well, you know, um, I've run out of white wine. I realized that last night. So we opened a bottle of cider, organic cider, and we had half of that last night. I made a poulot pot, which is a chicken in a pot. We had cider. Um, so we're probably going to finish that tonight. Um, this is sort of a movement now to dial down drinking. It's from Normandy. It's organic cider. Um, nice. So I've gotten into cider a little more. I have a friend who has a cider um, bar in Paris. Um, so he's introduced me to a, it's called La Cidrerie. Um, his name is Benoit. And he's introduced me to a lot of interesting ciders. It's very interesting because he's like, French people don't, you know, a lot of people in France drink cider because it goes with crepes. They're not, there's all these amazing artists and ciders and they don't get the same press they do. So he's like, I need to do this. And it is, he's busy now, which is great. So, yeah. I, the I, one that we see a lot of in the US was Eric Bordelais. Uh, they sell cider at Tapisserie, which is uh, Cidre de Volcane. It's a Swiss cider, which is like so fucking good. It's typically like quince and pear and apple, like all kind of co fermented together, but super delicious. The one, there's one, I think there's one that's quince and pear and apple, and that one's spectacular. Yeah. The, the other side of it, it's, it's like 26 euros a bottle or 30, yeah. which is a big ask in France um, because if you, you know, people in France, as you know, if yeah. you spend like $30 or 30 euros on a bottle of wine, it's going to be good. Whereas in yeah. America, it's going to be like fine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can no, get for sure. in America, but the reference, the price difference is so phenomenal. So it's, it's a tough, you know, it's also Swiss. So anything yeah. Swiss more expensive. But that <laughs> cider is, Excellent. We would sell it at our wine bar. And I think we had to charge $13, $14 a glass. And people were like, $14 a glass for cider. We're like, but it's really fucking good cider. Like, this is so good. Well, somebody who knows cider, like I was with a liquor distributor um, from House Alpens. Yeah. He came, we were at Septim Cav having wine and he knew a lot more about wine than I did. And he was going to visit someone. He's like, what should I get? I was like, well, this cider's good. He's like, oh, this guy loves cider. I'll get him a bottle. And he didn't know about it. I was like, oh, 
you know, haha, me. But yeah. you know, if someone knows about it, then they'll be appreciative of it. You know, it's sort of one of those unicorn things. You know, you were serving it by the glass; people wouldn't have a chance to taste it. So mm-hmm. it's a certain person that will pay that thirteen dollars for it. Yeah. It was imported to the U.S. by Becky Wasserman, you know, uh, who recently passed away. But um, it was, I think, the one cider in her portfolio. You know, it's Burgundy, amazing Loire Valley, and then a Swiss cider. So it was wild. It was fun. A friend of mine own, owns Bone Imports in um, Berkeley, and he mm-hmm. carries one French cider. And it might be the one that you mentioned Um it's just, you know, once again, getting like in France, especially you can go to the supermarket and buy a bottle of cider for three euros. Yeah. And it's fine. Um, if you spend seven euros, it's better. And, you know, it's naturally fermented and stuff like that. And then you go to, th- you know, 30 is a big ask, but. Even at Barsep team, I was there the other day and they were saying that they get complaints all the time from guests that come in from France that are like, why are you charging seven euros for this glass of wine? And they're like, because it's Frank Cornelis and Susukaru, or because it's, you know, this amazing grower champagne. They say all their foreigners are totally cool with the prices, but all their French guests are like ripping their hair out. So that was another thing when I was in the US, I was doing research for my book. I became friends with people at Slope Cellars in Brooklyn, which is a very good wine shop, but it's like your typical neighborhood, very good wine shop. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, so I figure whatever they have is good. And he said, like, all the Europeans come in um, and complain about wine prices in America. Um, <laughs> and yeah. he didn't mean that in a bad way. It's just when I, you know, when I went in there to buy wine, I, was, I said, yeah, I felt bad. I was like, well, I'm just, it's very hard for me to spend $30 on a bottle of wine. I'm going to drink at home, you know, yeah. drink like a glass tonight, two glasses, you know. Um, you know, to the three tier system, you know, really just fucking things over and not to mention the tariffs that were in place. Like that didn't help matters much either. So, well, it bothers me in America that, um, more restaurants don't offer like wine by the carafe because yeah. it's a really economical, it's an ecological way for restaurants to serve wine. They can still make a lot of money. It's like draft beer and coffee, you know, coffee by the cup, you know, is our huge money makers. Mm-hmm. It's like, I would order more wine if it was in the carafe in America. And I don't want a bottle. Sometimes I want like 50 centiliters is fine for two of us for dinner. And my friends who have wine, who have restaurants to go, we need to make as much money as we can, wherever we can. And I don't, not, not in a bad way, but they need to make money to pay their staff and so forth. I mean, I'm sure you still have friends that are working in restaurants and just the 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 labor shortage, I feel like the industry's just become so unsustainable now. It, it's really tricky for restaurants to hit their margins, for staff members to have a livable wage. I mean, I can't imagine it was all that much better, you know, when you were working at Chez Panisse, you know, in terms of just the, the ecosystem that existed. Well, at Chez Panisse, Chez Panisse, we had really good vacation. We had like two, like, I think it was two years, two weeks vacation right away. Mm like for your first year, then it became three weeks. And then I think, and we also had um, health insurance and I don't remember if we had to pay part of it, but that's one of the that's big, wild. That's crazy. Well, you know, Shape Panisse was, we were one of the first restaurants to go um, without tips to go tip free. But one of the hardest things, um, and I don't really want to get too political here, but one of the biggest challenges in America is health insurance. And when you lose your job, you lose that if you can get it all. So a lot of people don't want to go work in restaurants because they're like, well, yeah, I live in New York. I'm making, you know, $15 an hour. Um, I can barely afford my apartment. What if I get sick? So that's something like Warren Buffett, who's, you know, 
the largest capitalist in America. He said, you know, the lack of single payer healthcare is what's hurting American businesses the most. And depending on who you talk to, some people are like, you know, people are like, well, wages should be higher. It's like, okay, well then restaurant owners will make less money. And a lot of people think, well, they're owners of restaurants, they're, they're raking it in. That's not always the case. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of a vicious circle, as you mentioned. Um, it's hard to get people now who, who can afford to live in New York or San Francisco who make $15 an hour and nobody wants to pay, you know, $18 for a croissant, you know? I mean, that's the flip side to it, right? Even in Texas where, you know, the cost of living is lower. My friends that run a barbecue restaurant, they had to stop serving chicken wings. They were like the price on for a case of chicken wings has gone up 300% over the past, you know, three or four months. We can find people and we're paying, you know, five, $6 above minimum wage for, for kitchen positions. So it's a really tricky, tricky spot to be in as an owner. Well, they just announced um, that there's a 30% increase in the price of flour in France, and that's going to hit bakeries. You know, a bakery, the average um, uh, profit on a baguette is eight cents. So they're selling a baguette that's a euro or euro 20, euro 40 is like, you know, the maximum you can charge. They're making eight cents per baguette. So you sell 200 or 300 baguettes. It's not a lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. Especially in a country where employee labor is very expensive, they're paying social charges, health people's health insurance. So there's talk about they're going to be raising the price. There's a, a price. There's an official price of a baguette. Um, they're going to have to raise the price ten cents or something like that. Um, I haven't read it too much, but people are flipping out over that. Like support your local boulangerie. I mean, when you're learning these like political things within the food sphere in France. Where are you getting that information from? Is it just like in the local news or are there yeah, specific? The newspaper. Yeah. And people, you know, like France, uh, 24 France 24 is a friend, official French news in English, Arabic, Spanish, and French. They have different channels. And it's a great place to get news from the French perspective, but about mm-hmm. France that's in English or in other languages. So um, it's good to follow. They have really interesting things about French culture as well. Um, you know, they have a show called Cultural Connections, I think, with these two women. And they talk about, like, do French people really not bathe? Um, <laughs> or like, what is, you know, now this to talk, like, they sell more mozzarella than camembert in France. Really? Um, or oh. they're, they're like, yeah. It's like, what's going on? They can't be happy about that. Yeah. So, like, why is that? And it's funny, you know, they, they do it with humor and so forth. Fun stuff. David, if people want to find you on the World Wide Web, what's the best um, either social media handle or website? Like, where can people go to, to look you up? Um, they can go to my blog at davidlebovitz.com um, with a V or Instagram. I'm at David Leibovitz with a V. <laughs> so. I love it. David, thank you so much for taking the yeah. time to chat, take an hour out of your morning to, to hang out with me. Oh, it's nice to meet you, Chris. I hope I didn't say anything bad. <laughs> All right, I'll okay. catch you around, man. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That is our show. Thank you so much for listening. You can stream every episode of By the Glass wherever you get your audio content. We're on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, all that shit. So go online. If you haven't reviewed, slap a little five-star review on there. Would really appreciate it. And we will see you with another episode soon. Au revoir.